Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to the first episode in our new series of Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Dale Murray co-founded the massively successful Omega Logic, which provided an electronic solution for mobile phone top-ups, just as mobile phone use in the UK was becoming widespread. She's now an angel investor and business advisor, who devotes her time to promoting entrepreneurship. But it was not all plain sailing, as she told me when she came into the FT studio recently. I began by asking her what made her decide to start her own business. It was a number of things. I had come from the mobile industry, so I knew that sector, as did one of my co-founders. There were three of us that started the company. I wasn't working in the mobile industry at that time, though, but was observing what was happening. And there was definitely an opportunity. What was happening was a change in the marketplace. So the mobile industry was very different to what it is today, I suppose. And the way in which people paid for their airtime was different. So the opportunity was that prepay handsets had just been launched in the UK marketplace or pay-as-you-go handsets. A hugely successful market offering. About 10 million phones were purchased by customers in the first year. So a super, super successful product. Unfortunately, though, there wasn't a very easy way to top up or recharge those mobile phones It was only possible to do it by buying a scratch card or a voucher and a very analogue, very manual process that you had to do to actually go to a shop and actually buy this voucher and recharge your phone. So we thought that there was a terrific opportunity to displace that product and actually move it to an online or an electronic process instead. So very, very fortunate that we just happened to know that market and saw this shift in the marketplace convincing big companies that your little company has got the idea that they need to buy is a common challenge for entrepreneurs. What were the key moments? We had to satisfy the UK mobile network operators that we were fit to work with. And that did take some time. We must have met them, oh my goodness, uh, you know, six, seven, ten, twelve times, I think, before they even gave us the ability to enter into a tender to to work with them. So we had to go through a very formal procurement process. And yes, we were very small. But I think what we did is, first of all, we met them and tried to build some trust and build some understanding of the problems that they were facing and that we knew what we were talking about and that we knew that we could solve it. We had to go through quite a period of building that sense of credibility. I think credibility is one of the hardest things to build. I did have a decade or so in blue chips. I did have business school experience and a professional career. So I think that that did certainly add some level of credibility. But we had to work at it. And actually, some of our competitors were blue chips. We had competitors that were listed companies. As I say, though, in hindsight, when I asked the network operators 
much, much later on, why was it that you worked with us as a small startup? They said, well, all the things that you worried about were the things that actually attracted us to you. So you were worried about lacking credibility. We were interested, though, in your creativity, the fact that you were very agile, you moved very, very quickly. We'd ask on a Monday morning if you can do something. And by Tuesday afternoon, you'd come back to us, not just told us that you could, but you told us how you could do it and, and how much it would cost and, and you could start working on it very, very quickly. And they liked that very much. And we hadn't realized that we were so quick and so able to solve problems they saw in a more agile way than larger organizations. Why do you think you were so quick? Because we were smaller. There was very, very little bureaucracy, very few rules. There was just a few of us, less than 10 people when we started out. And so we can make decisions very quickly and get moving. How did you actually pay for the business, getting it off the ground? Yeah, that's always the hard bit, isn't it? We'd done quite well in our early career, so we had a bit of savings, the three of us. I think we put in all of our life savings, but that was about a quarter of a million between the three of us. So that was a great start. We had friends and family kind of match that, which was terrific. And then we went to angel investors. So we chanced upon a number of key individuals who worked in the fields of technology, understood what we were doing or trying to do, and were very happy to back it. When you say chanced upon, what did that mean? Yes. Well, like all of these things, it's chance, isn't it? You know, we met a couple of people. We were looking for certain services in building our own supply chain as we were building our own business capability. One of those people was impressed with what we were trying to achieve, introduced us to somebody else who happened to be a high net worth individual who at that time did back technology companies. So yes, all of these things are quite lucky, aren't they? <laughs> and it's creating your own luck. Is that by doing or talking? Well, a bit of both, really. I mean, I think that you do have to get out there. You do have to make your own opportunities, by which I mean, you know, when people offer you a meeting, a conversation, you know, getting to know you further, try and do that as much as you can, because you're never quite sure where it's going to lead. There has to be a balance, doesn't there? I mean, there's an awful lot out there at the moment in Britain that supports startup and technology companies. You have to make sure that you don't spend a disproportionate amount of your time going out there to all of these events and offerings out there in the marketplace. But when I was building my company, it was the early noughties, you know, it was quite some time ago, and there was nothing like what's available. Now, So you had to just get out there, meet people, get people interested. And all of those meetings are useful because even if the feedback is, look, we're not quite sure what you're doing or we don't quite agree with you that this is a really big problem that needs solving, at least you've got some more feedback and you can, you know, throw that into the pot and think about it and maybe create something different. What was the hit rate? How many doors do you have to knock on to get things moving? Probably the ones that successfully invested, probably one in five, roughly, you know, one in four, one in five. Interestingly, one of the people who did invest quite a sizable amount, he initially declined to invest in one of our funding rounds and said, look, I like what you're doing, but it's a bit too early. So no, thanks very much. We'll pass on this. Well, about six months later, I went back to him and said, just wanted to keep you updated. We did close that funding round and we continue to build our company. But look what we've done now. Now we've got this contract and that contract. We've got this revenue. Would you now like to look at our company? And he did. And he liked the progress that he saw and he invested then. So that showed me that no is never really a no. It might be no at the moment, but you can always go back as long as you've been professional and maintained that relationship and then try and get the deal later. So I think this is vital and I don't think it happens a lot now. A lot of people might approach me for various business opportunities and I might decline some of them. And 
more often than not, I never hear from that person again. And I think that's such a shame. In business building, we like people to do what they say they're going to do in any business, whether you're small or large. If you get out there as an executive and you say, this is my plan, and then you go away and do it, or you go away and do something else, but have a very good rationale as to why your plan's adapted and changed and and you took on different opportunities or you came up with different results. Communicating that back to key interested parties in your sector, in your community, that's vital, I think. We love to know, don't we, that people have gone out and achieved something and made some progress. That's very, very appealing. What was the hardest moment? There were so many hardest moments. One of the hardest moments was quite early on, we had an offer of about half a million pounds of investment from a venture capitalist, which was terrific. We were absolutely broke. I was taking money out of my personal credit card, putting it into the company account to make payroll for my staff. So things were really tough and I was under pressure from my angel investors. So I was very keen to get that money in, desperately needed it. And I went to the VC's office to sign the paperwork to get the money. Everything had been agreed, and they said to me that morning that they had decided to change the valuation, that they were going to invest in my company. They'd halved the valuation. Therefore, they would get a significantly larger share of my company. So I was quite shocked, and I declined their adjusted offer. And I remember in that meeting, the guy turning to me and saying, well, what are you going to do? You know, you need my cash. You have to take my money. Otherwise, you'll go bankrupt. And I remember thinking, how rude, you know, the audacity, you know, he's pushing me into a corner. He thinks that he holds all the cards here. So I said, I'm not doing this deal. I'll find another way. You know, I will find the money somewhere else. And I remember leaving that office, going down the lift well, getting straight on my phone and ringing everybody I knew who had shown any interest in investing in the company. So individuals, you know, my lawyer and my accountant and my friends from business school and what have you. And I cobbled together a funding round of about a quarter of a million pounds over the next two weeks and saved things. That was a real turning point for me because I thought, first of all, I didn't expect anybody would treat you quite so badly. They really knew that I was cash strapped and they were using that to their own advantage But I also thought, actually, I can't work with that person. I wouldn't want that person on my board. I wouldn't want them to be an investor in my company. And even though some of my co-owners were saying, no, no, you've got to take the money. Just take it. Don't worry. We'll deal with them later. We need the money. Just take it. I thought, no, we'll find a different way. And we did. And that proved to me that there always is a different way of solving problems. Yeah. You talk about the value of integrity in business. What did that mean for you? I think that what served us well is that all of us are characters that are quite plain spoken and I think quite down to earth. We kind of thought the the culture of our company would be as transparent as we could and we would be very clear with people when we made mistakes and put our hands up and say, yep, that's on our shoulders, we'll fix that. And similarly, be quite assertive about when we could see ways of doing things differently or doing them more productively. And I think that that can be quite endearing if it is authentic, especially startups and high growth small companies. It can serve them very, very well. If they use it carefully, that can be a very good attribute to the business's development. There came a point where you were selling the business. How did that come about? That was opportunistic, like many of these things are. We were approached by somebody who was entering the industry, 
We had been successful at securing a very limited number of contracts from the mobile network operators. Those operators weren't offering those license agreements or those contracts to any new entrants. So there were very, very high barriers to entry into this market. The only way you could get into this market was effectively by buying an incumbent, which we were. So we were approached by somebody wanting to enter the market. And, you know, we danced around each other for a while, of course. And eventually the opportunity looked too good to say no to. And so we sold. We did it in two phases, actually. We had a part exit to a privately held company. And then uh, a couple of companies were put together. And then together, the group was sold to a Fortune 500 company. How many years after starting did you do this? I was fully exited within five and a half years of starting from start to finish, yeah. Was there a number in your head? There was a number in our heads and actually it was our investors as well. Looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, our investors had a number in their head that they were very interested in getting to. That certainly influenced us. And it's very difficult when you sell your company. It's never universal that every founder and every investor wants to sell at that time. And I would have preferred to carry on and and kept leading that company. But you get to a point where people are exhausted building businesses of this scale. We scaled very quickly. We grew very, very quickly. You know, big, big numbers. And I cannot tell you if we had weekends at all over the periods of those years that we were building that company. So people get very tired. And there is therefore an increased likelihood that they might exit, I think, or it certainly happened in our case because people were tired. Investors become fatigued as well and want an exit. So, yeah. You are now an investor and you've been a very successful angel investor in other startups. But there's clearly the passion for entrepreneurship. Why don't you go back and try it again? I think starting a company, for me, it has to be when the opportunity is right, the timing is right. For us, when I started my first company, all the ducks were lined up. Everything was all ready to go. I really did feel like I had a terrific chance at success. I've not quite found that with anything else yet at the moment. Additionally, I get enjoyment out of having quite a variety of things that I do. So I advise lots of companies. I sit on boards of some companies. I do do angel investing. I do public speaking. I have quite a variety of things that I do. And that adds a certain richness to your life as well. I have to say, I probably was happiest in my career when I was leading a company. That is great fun. So perhaps next time you speak to me, I might be back doing that. (laughs) What would you say to other people who are on the fence at the moment and thinking, is this the time for me to do this? I think it's very personal because people will have different risk appetites. So firstly, do take advice, speak to people, speak to your family members, those people who are going to care for you as you go on this journey, definitely speak to them. Friends, associates, anybody that you know that works in that sector, make soundings with those people, hear what they have to say. In saying that, though, do still try to maintain your own independence of thought It's you that's going to have to take the risk and take the leap at the end of it. And it's you that will have to really work hard to get it off the ground. For me, the real tipping point was after, I think, about a month of sleepless nights (laughs) when I would go to bed thinking about the opportunity and still wake up thinking about the opportunity. And even though I did have a terrific career, I thought, actually, I really have to do this because... 
at that point in my life, there's not too much to lose. You know, if it all goes wrong, I can go back and find another job, you know, and carry on in my career. So I really didn't feel like I had too much to lose. And even the money, even investing my life savings, I thought, well, I can build that up again. So I think if you're not sleeping well, if you've spoken to people in the industry, if you know that your family or your close friends are going to support you, you know, and you can't quite get rid of the idea in your head, then you've got to go for it, really, don't you? I asked Thomas Hellman of the Said Business School in Oxford to comment on Dale's story, notably the moment when she faced bankruptcy. Now, I think that, you know, that moment was really a defining moment for her company. Now, as a good academic, the first thing I want to say is that if you play by the textbook, the situation should never happen, which is she let herself become very vulnerable to what turned out to be an opportunistic investor. Now, that's obviously nice. That's the academic advice. And I'm fully aware that in reality, entrepreneurs end up in that situation all the time. I do think it is important for entrepreneurs to to think about runway. But the reality is you, in entrepreneurship, you just can't plan things the way you want to. I mean, you're doing something difficult and challenging. Now, I think the defining moment for her company, or one of the defining moments, was the courage to say no. And if you just think through that story of what would have happened to her company if she had said yes... Well, probably she would never have gotten to be interviewed by you because her company would have disappeared quietly and nobody would have heard of it. It's the fact that she had the courage to, you know, stand up to what was clearly what we call this a hold-up situation. I mean, basically somebody taking advantage of the vulnerability. It's the fact that she could stand up to that that I think defined the greatness of her venture and of her as an entrepreneur. But what she did was exactly the right thing. Now, I think first I want to say I think she's got the mark of a true great entrepreneur. And one of those marks is to be highly networked. And so in some sense, even without knowing it, she had planned for this event because she had maintained relationship the way she talks about working with investors, communicating even when they said, no, you keep them in the loop is a sign of a great networker. And that network became her plan B, not in her premeditated way but just her instinct as an entrepreneur is always keep your options open always keep good relationships and when push came to shove she had that network to come back to was it easy no she had to put together a you know piecewise little bit of money here and there which is we never like to do but what we often do as entrepreneurs now if every investor was behaving like that particular investor then it would almost be simple because then you know what to expect and you know that they're going to give you a terrible deal and you anticipate it. It's the fact that only some behave in that way and others don't that makes it more difficult because you don't know who to trust and there are many trustworthy investors who would never have done what that investor did but there are enough bad ones out there that you have to be aware of the tricks and the games that are being played. But as usual... We'll leave the last word to our entrepreneur, Dale Murray. What's her view about what makes a successful entrepreneur? Personally, I think it's always brilliant to go out and build tangible business skills before starting out on your own. Get some hard knocks and get some learnings at the cost of somebody else in a corporate environment even before you go out on your own. That's interesting because people imagine that sort of entrepreneurs are a different breed to 
executives. I think you're right that people do say that. And I think, though, that if you say that an entrepreneur is a disruptor or a creator or an innovator, then yes, those types of entrepreneurs may not do very well in a traditional corporate environment. But entrepreneurship is not just that. Entrepreneurship is taking a risk to do something new or different, you know, to build a new business in this case. That's it for this week. Next time, we talk to Jacob Gear, co-founder of the Swedish payments company iZettle. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.